Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we'd like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving Mother of the Redeemer, Gate of Heaven, Star of the Sea, assist your people who have fallen, yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature, you bore your Creator, yet remained a virgin after as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, have pity on us poor sinners. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop reflects upon the birth of Christ, including the humility of Mary, the meaning of Jesus placed in a manger, and how his birth was a quiet sign of love and mercy filled with the power of God. Then Bishop answers questions submitted by listeners on topics like why priests wear black with a white collar and advice for evangelizing in the workplace. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. Happy almost Christmas. Still Advent though, right? It is. And uh, what a great time of year, isn't it? Especially this week before Christmas, as we get closer, the the joyful anticipation Uh of the feast of our Savior's birth. It's a great time of the year. What should we be reflecting on in these past couple days before Christmas? Well, you know, I always love to reflect on the readings of the these nine days before Christmas. Mm-hmm. The liturgy, the prayers, and the readings are really perfect because they center on some of the events that took place right before Jesus' birth. So we have different prophecies from the Old Testament about the birth of the Messiah in our first readings, but we also have gospel readings about the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, and then the story of John's birth, then the announcement of Jesus's birth, the Annunciation, and then the Visitation, and then one of the Gospels this week is the Magnificat, Hmm. and then Matthew's account of Joseph's dream. So there's just a lot of great scripture in these nine days before Christmas. And even if some people can't get to Mass during this week before Christmas, they could meditate on the the daily readings because they are very rich. And I think that's a great way to prepare. And also, I think, just contemplating the mystery by maybe praying the joyful mysteries of the rosary this week. And I'll mention, since you said reading along with the readings, both the Today's Catholic app And the Redeemer Radio app have the daily readings in them. So if you wanted to pull them up, you could just find them in the Today's Catholic app or the Redeemer Radio app. Uh, But one of the things that you mentioned in there was the announcement of Jesus. And Venerable Fulton Sheen said that Jesus is the only person ever pre-announced. I kind of wondered if you could unpack that a little bit. First of all, I guess if that's true, if he is the only person that was pre-announced. And then what does that mean? You know, that's a good question. Um, I never thought of that before. Uh, I never saw that quote of Archbishop Sheen. But of course, the Old Testament is just full of what we can look back and say, oh yeah, that's a prophecy of Christ. Uh 
he is pre-announced in a sense, especially Isaiah when it talks about the virgin shall, shall bear a, a son and he shall be called Emmanuel. I mean, that's an amazing prophecy. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Uh -huh. So I would take, uh, who am I to disagree with Archbishop Sheen? <laughs> I, I haven't thought about that, but uh, yeah, I mean, who else? I'm just trying to think. You don't hear of pre-announcements of the birth of other great figures in history. You don't have any pre-announcement of, of the birth of Augustus Caesar, for example, who was hmm. the emperor at the time of Jesus's birth. We have great heroes like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln here in our own country. There's no pre-announcement. So right. it sounds like what he's saying is, is true. One of the things for the Christmas Mass is there's different readings depending on which Mass you go to. Could you maybe walk us through some of the, the messages that we'll hear on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Yes, there's actually four Christmas Masses. It's very interesting. We have uh -huh. the Vigil Mass, which is, um, has the gospel of the genealogy of Jesus which ha in, in Matthew's gospel. So it has all the names of the ancestors of Jesus. Now, I understand that in some parishes, they'll replace that with the midnight mass readings because the genealogy, especially if it's a children's mass, can be very you know, <laughs> difficult. Okay. But, um, but technically, you know, the, the first mass of Christmas is the vigil and that has the genealogy. And then we have what we call the mass at night, midnight mass or if it's late at night mm -hmm. on christmas eve and that's where we hear the traditional readings that we're so accustomed to luke's version luke's account of the birth of jesus when the angels appeared to the shepherds and announced that uh that they would find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Hmm. I mean, we're all familiar with that famous account by St. Luke. But that technically is the only Mass of Christmas that uses that gospel. And the first reading that night is the famous reading from uh, the prophet Isaiah, which talks about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So that's a really, those, those readings are, are beautiful. Then if you go to Mass on early Christmas morning, it has the gospel of the shepherds going to the manger and adoring the Christ child. Hmm. And then if you go to what we call Christmas Mass during the day, which would be a later morning or noon Mass, it would be the gospel of St. John chapter 1, where we read about the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So it's really interesting, the four different masses. So whichever you go to, you'll hear probably different readings. And they all kind of shed light on the, some aspect of the mystery of the nativity of the Lord. And I guess that might be another thing that we could do to prepare for Christmas, to read through those different Christmas readings from mass. Yes. Also, another thing, we talk a lot about Mary during Advent and at Christmas as well. What are some of the things that we should be getting from her example or reflecting on as we approach Christmas? Well, you know, I think Mary, you know, she's just an image of tender love. When we see her or think about her or imagine her, we, we can think about the, the hardship that she and Joseph endured. You know, there was no room for them in the inn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the first thing to 
to contemplate when we think about the mystery of Christmas, how they, they get to Bethlehem, and there's no, you know, it's so crowded, there's no room for them to stay. So they had to go out to a, a manger, a place where animals would feed, and when you think about it, it's the, you know, the birth of the Savior of the world, and here it's um, a place that's, there wasn't any place. So I think there's a lot of significance in that. We can think about later in his life as the people of Nazareth, Jesus' own, in his own hometown, did not accept him. Mm -hmm. So we see that rejection. I think there's a spiritual meaning to that, that the doors were closed on that first Christmas. There wasn't room in the inn for the birth of the Messiah. And I think we can think of the inn as the human heart. You know, it's something important to contemplate. Do we have room in our lives, in our hearts, to welcome God? God who comes among us through his son. Because we're all free. And in freedom, we can open or close the door of our heart to God. To God who comes to us as a tiny baby. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an amazing thing. So we can ask ourselves, you know, what would we have done if Joseph knocked at our door that first Christmas Eve? Would we receive Jesus? But, but the more important question is, do we make room for Jesus now in our lives? Hmm. Do we make time for him? Or do we turn God away sometimes, you know, where we're so focused on ourselves or our own plans and purposes that we forget about God? We can, we can become so full of ourselves that there's no room left for God. Of course, we make room for God when we pray, when we go to Mass. We make room for God when we see His face in the poor and in the homeless, in the immigrant, in the sick and the suffering. That's how we make room for God. So I think one of the things at Christmas is, is to be renewed in our faith, that we make room for God within ourselves and that we recognize him in children, unborn children, in born children, in the suffering, in the abandoned, in the poor of this world. And then to recognize Jesus also in the sacred host, in the Holy Eucharist. He came humbly 2,000 years ago, born in a trough where animals ate. He comes to us humbly still under the forms of bread and wine as food mm. for our souls. And we're not worthy to receive him. We're not worthy, as we say before we receive communion, that he come under our roof. But he comes to us in this very humble way. He came with humility to Bethlehem. Getting back to the Blessed Virgin Mary, I mean, she's our lady of humility. I mean, she humbly opened her heart to God at the Annunciation. But she welcomed her son into the world that first Christmas, even amidst the hardship and the poverty of his birth in a manger. So Mary is always the model for us of this humble opening ourselves to God's word in our lives, to God himself. As you explain all of those those details that we hear, not just every year, but I feel like it's, it's a common message of the story of the nativity and the, the rejection and the birth in a manger. 
it almost becomes kind of cliche and ordinary, although it's, it was such an extraordinary adventure. I can imagine having children of my own and not having to give birth to them myself, but like that whole process is such a kind of a crazy event. And knowing that God could have come into the world in any form that he desired, in any circumstances that he desired, we have to imagine that there is a lesson in all of those details for us. It wasn't just some kind of random coincidence that this is how it happened, that there was no room at the end. So all of those details matter, and we should be reflecting on those and, and how it impacts us and, and what we are to learn from it. You're right, and I think of the angels and the incredible news that they communicated to the shepherds. They spoke about a sign, the sign of the birth of the Savior. And this is a sign that's been given to us. It's God's sign when you think about it. Hmm. What did the angels say? And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Hmm. That's God's sign. What is his sign? It's simplicity. Hmm. It's humility. He comes to us in poverty, in a manger where animals ate. So it's the Son of God. His eternal glory, his divine glory is hidden beneath the poverty of a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So there's nothing of outward splendor or magnificence in this. It's not extraordinary. This is God's sign, the infant lying in a manger. And that sign is valid for us today. It's not just something of 2,000 years ago. It's a sign of hope for us today, of hope for the whole human family. And I say it's a sign of peace. When you think of a, a little child, a sign of peace for those who are suffering from conflicts of every kind throughout the world. Here we have the Prince of Peace, and it's a sign of freedom for the poor and the oppressed. It's a sign of mercy for those who are caught up in the vicious cycle of sin. And it's a sign of love and consolation for those who are feeling lonely and abandoned. So this fragile sign, this humble sign, quiet sign, is, is something that's filled with the power of God, who out of love became man. It kind of turns the values of the world upside down yeah. when you think about it. I mean, this is God's power. It's the power of love, of God who humbles himself in this incredible way, becoming a little infant. That's the mystery of Christmas that we should be contemplating. So some of the commercialization of this feast is kind of the opposite of what it's all about. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, I'm not saying that everything, you know, all the celebrations, yeah, they're fine. Mm -hmm. But if we lose the spiritual significance and we get up, caught up in all the material aspects of this, of this feast, we lose the, the, the central message. So that's, that's important, I think, in these days before Christmas to keep the real meaning, true meaning of Christmas at the forefront. God becoming man, God becoming an infant shows us clearly that God is love. 
And there's a connection between this mystery of God becoming man, the word becoming flesh, the incarnation, and the Holy Trinity. When you think about it, God is love, as St. John teaches us, a communion of love. We can say God's a family, Hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This gets to the very essence of Christianity, the incarnation and the Trinity. You know, there's no other religion, no other philosophy that has this belief. No one could ever imagined that, first of all, that God is love. And we know that love as the Blessed Trinity. And then that startling affirmation that the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, as we say in the Creed, in the Nicene Creed, came down from heaven. Now, we say that so often, we probably aren't amazed at it. But there is, I would call this amazement about the incarnation, about the mystery of Christmas that we should have. We can think of how amazed the shepherds were. But it's something that is so amazing when we step back and we start thinking about it. And when we pray or recite the Nicene Creed, the church asks us to bow at certain words. Actually, on Christmas, we're supposed to genuflect when we profess, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Hmm. We bow or genuflect when we say those words because they are amazing words. So that's something I think for us to think about in these days before Christmas. God isn't, uh, as in some religions, or philosophies, God is a distant reality. God is a reality known only from afar, but not for Christianity. God becomes close to us. He becomes one of us. He comes to heaven to bring heaven to us when you think about it. And then we can also think of various titles of Jesus that, that also help us to penetrate the mystery. And I think the greatest title, I mean, we have Messiah, we have Master, we have Lord, Prince of Peace, Rabbi. We think of all these titles, Christ, which means Messiah, Savior, King. But I think the greatest title is Son. He is the Son of God. And that's what we come to know at Christmas, the eternal Son of the Father. As St. Paul writes, God sent forth his Son born of a woman to redeem us. This human birth of God the Son, that he came down from heaven to share this sonship with us, to make us adopted sons and daughters of God. And the saints will speak of this as the marvelous exchange That's a beautiful expression, this marvelous exchange that God assumed our human nature in order to give us his divine nature. We become sons in the Son. In a word, what is that? It's salvation. God makes us his children and shares his divine nature with us. No wonder we sing joy to the world. There's no greater good news than this. Yeah. Well, I want to 
talk more about the Christmas story and some of the symbolism and get into questions asked by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about the upcoming celebration of Christmas. We are still in Advent, uh, but it's a time for us to prepare and to think about these things and to reflect on these things, and you've already given us so much to reflect on. One of the things, you mentioned all the different titles of Jesus, but what does the name Jesus itself mean? It means God saves. And okay. if you remember in the Old Testament, Joshua, that's Jesus, Yeshua uh-huh. in Hebrew, it means God saves. And we know how God saved the people. I mean, how God saved the people through Joshua. He led them into the promised land. You know, St. Joseph received the instruction in the dream from the angel that he was to name the child Jesus. Uh-huh. Because, of course, he is our savior. So he's given the name God saves. And of course, it's a salvation much greater than what the Israelite people experienced when they entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Because what we're talking about is is salvation, not just from material slavery like the Israelites, but we're talking about being saved from sin and death. So it's the ultimate liberation. Hmm. Another thing that we've mentioned a lot of different symbolism of Christmas. Another one is the light of the world, the light coming to the world into the darkness. A lot of that symbolism, light and dark, sometimes are midnight mass. Do they do the candles? No, no, that's at Easter. Easter vigil. vigil, Okay. Uh, But but, there's a lot of candles usually at Christmas Eve, midnight mass. A lot of candles are lit. They light the, if there's some Christmas trees in the church, they're lit. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's a, it's a very important because Christmas is a mystery of light. And every midnight mass, every Christmas Eve mass at night, we hear that famous reading from Isaiah where he wrote, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Okay. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. And it's in the dark of night that the shepherds were watching over their flock on the hills outside Bethlehem. And it was in the darkness that a great light penetrated the area because as we read in Luke's gospel, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel announced to them the birth of the Savior. And as we know, after they received that announcement, when the angel said, for today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you, who is Christ and Lord, what did they do? They ran to the manger and they adored the Christ child, the newborn king. So we could say that the darkness in their lives evaporated Hmm. when they encountered the light of the world, an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So all through history, there's been darkness, and there's darkness today, Mm -hmm. the darkness of sin all around us, and sometimes darkness within us. And there's so much sin, there's so much suffering, there's hatred, there's violence, there's despair, there's death. And yet, Christmas gives us hope in the midst of all this darkness. We're reminded of the truth 
that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So we can be enlightened by, by this. We're enlightened by our faith. We're reminded of this tradition of Christ as our light, who illumines the darkness, who overcomes sin and, and defeats death just by Christmas lights. I mean, I think we're also used to Christmas lights, but why are lights an important part of our Christmas decorations? We should really think about that. The true meaning is the light of God. Mm -hmm. It's the light that shatters the darkness of sin in our lives. But we have to be careful not to push the light of God into the shadows by a worldliness that can kidnap Christmas. And I think it was Pope Francis who said Christmas is kidnapped when it becomes a self-centered holiday where we put ourselves at the center rather than Jesus. Christmas is kidnapped when materialism abounds and when we're indifferent to the poor and the needy. Christmas, though, is real and beautiful when the light of Christ shines in our lives through love for one another, through works of mercy, the true meaning of Christmas. So it's good to reflect, I think, on this aspect of Christmas as a mystery of light. Without the light of faith, life is dark. It's gloomy. But like with the shepherds, when, the, when one has the light of faith, the darkness in our lives evaporates. When they heard that message of the angel, they believed and they went, the gospel tells us, in haste, in a hurry to adore the infant lying in the manger. Same thing happened with the Magi. When you think about the Magi, what did they follow? The light of a star that led them to Bethlehem, where they bowed down before the Christ child and they worshiped him. And I think like the Magi, we, we have to focus on that star and follow it which means basically persevering, persevering in our faith, persevering in hope and in love. Yes, there's darkness in our lives. We can't deny it. We all have experiences of darkness, but we must never give up following the light and embracing that light that shines from the manger of Bethlehem. Our life has changed when we do so. The light of Christ then shows us the way to journey through our life. It shows us how to live, not only by the 10 commandments, which God gave to his people in the Old Testament, but by the light of the gospel, the light of the Beatitudes, for example, that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. So light not only illumines, not only is something that shows us the way, but there's another aspect of light it's also a source of heat, hmm. which means love, the warmth of God. So I think in the infant Jesus in the manger, God has shown us the warmth of his love, that he humbles himself, he stripped himself of all majesty, all grandeur, in order to guide us along the way of love. Now, all through history, there are those who try to extinguish this light the light of Bethlehem, the light of love. But they've not been successful. We're still celebrating Christmas. I always remember, and I might have said this on the radio before, on Redeemer Radio, that uh, the words of St. Edith Stein, 
uh, St. Benedicta of the Cross uh -huh. at Auschwitz, where she was put to death. She said that the Star of Bethlehem even shone in that place of the most horrible evil in Auschwitz. And really, throughout history, the light of Bethlehem has shown wherever people have put their faith in that child born in the manger. Because what happens? When we put our faith in that child in the manger, charity springs forth. Hmm. Charity towards others. Loving concern for the weak and the suffering. And even forgiveness for those who've hurt us or offended us. When we look at the lives of the saints, we see this. They all bore that light of Christ. Everyone from St. Paul to St. Augustine, from St. Francis and St. Clair, St. Francis Xavier, the missionary, and, and St. Teresa of Avila, more recent saints like John Paul II and Mother Teresa of Calcutta. We see in all of them this flood of goodness, this path of light that shows us that it still shines that this light of Bethlehem still shines when the followers of Christ live as children of the light, which is our vocation. So we're called, I think, at Christmas to join that army of saints on that path of light, that path of love. And that light we're called to spread, yeah. that light that dispels the darkness of the world such an easy thing for me to visualize the, the adding light to dark areas and how it gives you clarity and there's just so many things that you can unpack with that I think it's a really helpful analogy another thing that people might hear at the Christmas masses depending on which mass you go to is from the gospel according to Luke where it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son I was kind of wondering if you could help clarify, people might think, wait a minute, we say that Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters, but now they're saying he was the firstborn son, so there obviously must have been other children after him if he's the firstborn. Yeah, but really the designation of the firstborn son was applied to the firstborn, uh -huh. whether there were any subsequent children born or not. Okay. That one is the firstborn, even if there's no others. Uh -huh. And that was typical. We have other examples in writings, ancient writings, where they speak of the firstborn son, but there were no other children. So one shouldn't necessarily interpret firstborn son to mean that there were subsequent children. And why would you even mention it then? Why would you say firstborn son? Because it has special significance in the Jewish faith. The firstborn son, first of all, received an inheritance uh -huh. and a blessing. And um, the divine commandment after the exodus was that the firstborn son be offered to the Lord hmm. and redeemed back because God had spared the firstborn sons of Israel when he destroyed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. So we can see why they would speak of Jesus as Mary's firstborn son because the firstborn son in any Jewish family was to be offered to the Lord. And there were many others who only had one child, and yet they would call, if it was a, if it was a boy, the firstborn son. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right, well, if you have any questions, you can ask them 
for Bishop. You can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about priests wearing black. That one comes from Father Nathan Maskell. A question about Catholic burials and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I am asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to respond to. And we got a question from Father Nathan Maskell from Holy Family Parish in South Bend, who claims that this is from somebody from the Holy Family second grade class. Okay. said, why do priests wear black with a white collar? Why does a priest wear a white alb during mass? Two good questions. Um, there's a whole development through history of clerical garb. Okay. And I won't get through all that because it's pretty technical and all kinds of things. But certainly by the Middle Ages, priests were wearing cassocks. And as it moved into the Renaissance, there was all kinds of colorful, rich, ornamented clothing that that people would wear. But the church did not want to go in that direction. The church wanted the clergy to be dressed in a very simple and kind of poor way and not flashy. So the color black basically is a color of mourning. You know, even today, some people, when they go to a funeral, will wear black. Well, that color black kind of represents for the priest, I think, this color of mourning and death because the symbolism would be dying to oneself in order to serve the Lord mm-hmm. and giving witness to the kingdom that is yet to come. So the black cassock, and now you you know the, the black shirts that priests wear, is basically to be simple and kind of a sign of the poverty and that death to self. Mm-hmm. So you think of, of of black as a color at funerals of mourning, we can think about how it symbolizes for the priest his death to himself and his rising to serve the Lord. Hmm. And I think your other question has to do with something white that the priest wears, and it's the alb. And the alb is something that goes, actually it, it means white. It's the Latin word alba. It's the color white. Oh. And it really was the regular clothes that was worn in the Greek-Roman world. They would wear these long white garments. So even in, in modern times when, well, not modern times, but even earlier when people were no longer dressing like that, the church kept that vesture of an alb this white garment, this long white garment that goes from the shoulders all the way down to one's ankles to remind us of our baptism. Hmm. Okay, remember when we were baptized, we were clothed with a white garment. It symbolizes our new life in Christ. I remember in the old prayers, when a, before a priest celebrated Mass, he'd put on the different vestments. When he would put on the alb, he would say this prayer, make me white, O Lord and purify my heart so that being made white in the blood of the lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. Hmm. I like that idea because when I put the alb on, I think of baptism. I think of 
how we're made white, we're made pure in the, the blood of the lamb. And that really goes back to the, the vision in the book of Revelation. If you remember, St. John describes the saints in his dream who stand around the altar of the lamb. And the book of Revelation says, these are the ones who have survived the great period of trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Huh. So hopefully you can understand a little bit more the, the meaning or significance of, of the alb that a priest wears or a deacon wears. All right. Mary Hines from St. Mary's in Niles, Michigan asked, are Catholics only supposed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery or can they be laid to rest in non-consecrated ground, such as in a city or town cemetery? Well, in those cases where, yes, they are allowed to be buried in other cemeteries. Of course, Catholic cemeteries would always have, you know, preference, but it's not always possible. There may not be a Catholic cemetery nearby or perhaps one's a, a military veteran and they're getting, uh, they have a grave provided for them in, a, in one of our national cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's important if you're not b- gonna be buried in a Catholic cemetery is that the grave be blessed. Okay. I think that's important. And that can always happen, right of committal, when a person is being buried in a non-Catholic cemetery, the priest will bless the grave uh, before they place the casket into the ground. And that was, I believe, our first question from a listener up in Michigan. So Mm -hmm. keep those questions coming. Excellent. Andrew Wright from Saints Peter and Paul in Huntington asked, what is your recommendation on wearing coats during the cold months at Mass? I think it should be left to the freedom of the person, whether to keep their coat on or take it off. From my own experience, (laughs) I like to take it off, but... But if the church is cold, I'm going to keep it on. <laughs> uh, sometimes it depends on how much of the heat is on in the yeah. church. So I know, like, you know, when I would travel in Europe, and especially when I studied in Rome, they didn't have heat in those churches, or very little. Huh. So I always kept my coat on. I mean, you'd be freezing if you didn't have your coat on. Well, you don't see that happening too much in the United States. But, but I don't think... Um, it really matters. I think it's up to the person. If you're warm, take it off. If you're cold, keep it on. <laughs> All right. You can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll have questions about evangelizing at work and another question from Father Eric Bergner coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for a bishop to answer. And Cecilia Hess asked, does bishop have any advice for people who work in corporate offices who are seeking to evangelize coworkers? Technically, it's not allowed, so it would have to be pretty subtle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the best form of evangelization is always our witness. Mm-hmm. I think it was St. Francis who said, preach only when necessary or how did, how did he say it preach the gospel at all times so when necessary use words very good kyle thank you for helping me i was struggling there <laughs> yeah so i think in a corporate office and even outside a corporate office it's our lives that proclaim the gospel living the beatitudes being patient just living the virtues mm-hmm. but there might be times where there is a possibility of 
actually talking about the Lord Jesus and sharing our faith. It could be perhaps in uh, a situation where an issue may arise that uh, someone may ask a question about one's Catholic faith. That's a real opening. Or there might be some moral issue that's being discussed. Mm. I think the important thing is we don't proselytize. We don't put down other other faiths. We don't try to force our beliefs on others. Mm-hmm. But we can propose them. You know, propose Christianity. Propose Catholicism. But I think in a corporate office, it would probably be frowned upon to be, you know, trying to convert people. But I think there's, again one's own example one's own good example that means if there's you know people telling dirty jokes or something you don't participate in it Mm -hmm. you don't laugh if some people are criticizing or putting other people down you don't share in that you might even offer a word of fraternal correction Mm -hmm. now they may say oh he's acting holier than thou but being authentic being an authentic disciple at work and in the office that's a means of evangelization. It could be a very powerful means. Even the kindness that one shows to coworkers, concern for coworkers, I think is, uh, is what attracts most people, will attract many, many people mm-hmm. to the Lord. All right. Cecilia also asked, I feel that catechesis for adults is incredibly important. What kinds of programs is the diocese looking to add? Wow, that's a good question, Cecilia. I I agree with you. We need adult catechesis. And a lot of adult Catholics are are interested in learning more about the faith. One of the secretariats in our diocese is the Secretariat for Evangelization and Discipleship. So adult faith formation and uh, adult catechesis really comes under the umbrella of that secretariat. And they have a lot of initiatives. Deacon Fred Everett's the, the, the head of that secretariat, and he has a wonderful staff, and they do have catechetical and formation experiences for adults. One of them that's really grown in popularity is, is the Alpha program you may mm. have heard of, and Alpha for Catholics. Uh-huh. It's kind of a evangelization program. It's kind of the basics of the faith, encountering Jesus. But then there's other things that are yet more in-depth with uh, the teachings of the church, like our education for ministry program. We have a lot of Catholic adults in our diocese who've gone through this two-year program. We're currently expanding it so that not only people who are involved in particular ministries can attend it, but it can be open to others who are interested. So the goal really is that not only on the diocesan level, but on the parish level, that there be opportunities for our adults to grow in their knowledge of the faith, and not only their intellectual knowledge, but also in their relationship with Christ. So you have things like Christ Renews His Parish Mm -hmm. or other movements that uh, have a catechetical dimension to them, but are also deeply personal and have to do with a whole way of life and spirituality as well. Well, our final question is from Father Eric Bergner from St. Pius X in Granger. He said, do you have a favorite type of music? Do you have a favorite song? 
You know, I think I might have mentioned on this show before, I like a lot of 60s and 70s music. Uh-huh. Uh, that's when I was in school, but that's a lot of fun for me. It brings back a lot of good memories when I listen to it. But I also like, even at this time of year, I love Christmas music. Yeah. I really do. It's so uplifting. I like classical music, too. You know, around this time of year, I love to listen to Handel's Messiah. Okay. But you know what? I can't pick one song. That'd okay. be hard for me. There's not like one particular song that I'd say, oh, this is my favorite song. Not I, I can't think of one. Jingle Bells. No, I wouldn't put that up there. You know, I'll say what my favorite Christmas song is, if you want to know yeah, that. Yeah, I do. Oh, come all ye faithful. Okay. In Latin, Adeste Fidelis. Oh. Yeah, I love that. That's my favorite all-time Christmas hymn. I don't know if I've heard it in Latin. I won't sing it or the, you'll never get more listeners on Redeemer Radio if I try to sing it. <laughs> Maybe one of these days. The, the last episode. <laughs> Maybe we can get a tape. Or why don't you sing it? You have a good voice, but oh, you don't I, know the Latin. Yeah, if I gave you the text, would you be able to pronounce it correctly? Nope. Not even oh, I close. could teach you that. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a whole episode. You teach me Latin. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again, Bishop, for joining us for another episode of Truth and Charity and sharing some of your wisdom with us. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? May the Lord bless you with his peace and his love during this holy season. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.